You are listening to the IMN podcast produced by the Boise Nampa Institute of Religion. We've asked members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to share how their lives have been blessed by living the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the Savior's request, come follow me, they have all responded, I am in. Eric Garner was born in Florida and introduced to the gospel by a friend following his freshman year of college at the University of Florida. He decided to join the church that summer and left that fall to attend Ricks College in Idaho. It was in Rexburg that he met Gloria King, and they would later marry in the Manti Temple after his mission. Eric served in La Paz, Bolivia. He learned both Spanish and Aymara on his mission, an Indian dialect spoken by natives in the Lake Titicaca area. During the final two months of his mission, Eric traveled in Bolivia researching words to assist in the translation of the Doctrine and Covenants into Aymara. Eric received a bachelor's degree from BYU, a medical degree from the University of Florida, an internship and residency in O2 Laryngology at the University of Texas in San Antonio. This was followed by a fellowship in facial plastic surgery in Chicago, Illinois. When he had finished all of his schooling and training, Eric Garner and his family moved to Boise, Idaho, where Eric began his practice in O2 Laryngology with an emphasis on facial plastic surgery. Brother Garner has served in various capacities in the church, including priest quorum advisor, high counselor, bishopric counselor, bishop, scoutmaster, stake young men's president, and YSA bishop. Eric and Gloria are the parents of seven children and 20 grandchildren. Well, thank you guys for coming. Uh, and welcome to those who are listening by podcast. It's kind of interesting to not see you, but we know you're out there. My sweet wife and I have been asked to share some thoughts on how the gospel of Jesus Christ has blessed our lives, both personally and professionally. And I hope that we can relate some experiences that illustrate that. And I plead for the Holy Ghost to be with speakers and hearers tonight, that as we unfold some things that have happened in our lives, that you can be benefited and edified by that. I'm a convert to the church, as Brother Knight said. I joined when I was 19 years old. In my childhood, my family was not terribly religious. We went to church only a couple of times that I can remember when I was a child. I did occasionally attend a church of Christ with my neighbor friends in my early teens, and I attended some Sunday meetings and a vacation Bible school and a few youth campouts. And I was impressed with the, young, with the young adult youth leaders and the older leaders as well. They were friendly, sincere, and very good role models for us. And I had always believed in God, and I believed in Jesus also. But I did not understand my relationship to them, who they were to each other, or who I was, or what I meant to them. And who was Satan, and why was he so mean anyway? I didn't dwell on this much, but it occasionally made me wonder. This belief in God and Jesus did not stop me from doing things I knew were wrong. I did, however, it did, however, make me feel guilty, and I felt that I had disappointed some, them somehow when I did wrong things. 
As I got into my later teen years, I began to wonder more and more about things bigger than what was immediately around me. One recurring theme I wondered about was, is there any universal truth? Are any principles out there universally true? Absolutely true. I got kind of hung up on that. Or are they random ideas of man? Or are they made up by society just, just to control us? Now, during this time, I also frequently had vague feelings of anticipation. Something like something was coming. Some event or change that was important, but it was just out of my consciousness's ability to grasp it. Once I even told a friend about this feeling of impending something. He asked, do you think it's death? I said, no, that wasn't it, or at least I hoped that wasn't it. It had no feeling of dread about it, more of a feeling of excitement somehow. And I graduated from high school and went off to the University of Florida in Gainesville, and the feelings of disquiet intensified. A persistent nagging feeling of, is this all there is, recurrently wafted through my mind. During this time, I had hopes of studying medicine eventually. After I'd given up my goal of playing in the NFL in junior high after I got cut from the varsity team. But my approach to school was rather lackadaisical as it had been in high school. I managed a few A's, a few C's, and the rest were B's. And I recognized that this was not compatible with eventually getting into med school. But I did not have the self-discipline to do anything differently. This left me with a gnawing feeling of incongruity, but I had no discernible ability to change that. I recognized in retrospect that I needed a reset, a reboot, if you will. That came the summer after my freshman year. My high school best friend, Mike McCray, had gone to some place in Idaho to go to college while I went off to Gainesville. His father told him that if he would go to Rick's College, now BYU-Idaho, that dad would pay for it. But if not, he was on his own. So Mike went to Rexburg and had a life-changing experience there. Now, to my regret, I had been a rather poor influence on Mike in high school. He never mentioned church or during the high school years or that he was a Mormon. I had no idea. When Mike got home from school and I got home from school the summer after our freshman year in college, we happened to pass each other in our cars on the road. We turned off and met in a parking lot. After pleasantries, we had what seemed to me a rather strange conversation. Mike said, Eric, I've got to talk to you. He said that with an intensity that was kind of puzzling. I said, okay, uh, come on over and we'll talk in my parents' motorhome. He came over and we sat across from each other at the dining table. And he began to tell me about the pre-existence. He said that we lived as spirit children of our Heavenly Father and we probably knew each other. He said that we were valiant spirits and faithful to God and had passed our first great test. And this allowed us to be born on earth as mortals. As I listened to his explanations, my, my, my mind was gently blown. I had never heard this concept in my life. I had heard of reincarnation 
as living multiple past lives on earth, but I couldn't get my mind around that concept. I had no inkling of past lives as a fish or a gnat or some other person. And I had heard of reincarnation, which of course is coming back as a hillbilly. But having, <laughs> but having existed before as a pre-mortal spirit, as God's son, God is our father and Jesus and Lucifer, technically my brothers, also sons of God, and that there was a real purpose for our coming to earth, and this too was a test. It all made sense. It explained so much, and it resonated in me as the truth. I had never heard this concept before, but it rang true. And it somehow was familiar. I somehow knew it was true, and I believed it as soon as I heard it. Mike gave me a Book of Mormon to read and explained its origin. I tried to read it over the next few days, and it was like trying to read the Bible. I had no doubt it was true, but the Bible was kind of heavy reading for me at that time, and this felt the same way. I kind of petered out in the Isaiah chapters. About this time, I went to live at my grandparents' house. Home had some issues, and it was better at Naughty and Earl's. Mike invited me to come to church with him, which I did, and I recognized a few people I'd known from high school, which was cool. Mike invited me also to a family award family home evening, which was a beach outing. We lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and the Atlantic Beach was just 10 miles up the road. Some of the older boys and young men took a huge seine net out in the ocean up to their necks and then curved around and went parallel to the shore for a while and then headed back to shore. It was very cool and many fish were caught. And I was welcomed with such kindness and friendliness by all. I felt very comfortable and very much at home. The ward also had a softball team and Mike and I played with them as well. And again, I was welcomed with open arms. And then I was invited by Mike to meet with the missionaries. And I agreed. I did want to know more. I envisioned old men with long beards. But to my surprise, there were kids my age. We met at a member of the ward's house. And I continued to attend church with Mike. And after about the third missionary lesson, it dawned on me where this was going. I was going to be invited to be baptized. This was terrifying to me. Not because this was creepy or weird or anything. It was that... I knew if I did this, if I made this commitment to God, I would be accountable for it. If it didn't stick or last or I couldn't do it or couldn't stay true or couldn't keep up, then I'd be in deep trouble with God. I didn't doubt the church. I doubted me. I had never stuck to anything in my life up to that time. I had no experience with long-term follow-through. Dare I do this and risk failure? And it was no minor failure. It had eternal consequences. Terrifying. About this time, the missionaries challenged me to pray about the prophet Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon and asked God if the things that they had taught me were true. I said I would. I went home that night and knelt at the side of my bed I began my prayer and asked Heavenly Father if Joseph Smith was a prophet and if the Book of Mormon was true. 
No sooner had I asked the question than a voice in my head said, you already know it's true. I said, I know, but the missionaries told me to pray about it. And suddenly it dawned on me what had just happened. The Spirit spoke directly to me and acknowledged that I already knew. And it was true, I did already know. And now it was out in the open. Now I was in a bind. I knew that it was true and I would either need to commit or be in deep trouble with God. God was giving me a chance for a clean slate, a life do-over of sorts. And if I rejected it, who knows how bad it would be for me in eternity? Probably super bad. But if I accepted and failed to live up to that commitment, wouldn't I be in deeper trouble for not following through? Wouldn't God just see me as being a hypocritical, hypocritical weenie who could not keep promises? It seemed worse to egotistically say, sure, I'll do this, and then fail. It seemed worse to do that than to never try at all, kind of like free climbing a cliff face without a rope. If I fell before the top, I was dead. At least if I never left the ground, the short term would be better. But I realized that this was an amazing opportunity God was offering me to have a chance at salvation. And blowing it off would be damning. Damned if I didn't do it and damned if I did it and failed. My only choice really was to try. I decided I would commit and hope and trust Heavenly Father to help me. Three weeks after being introduced to the gospel, I was baptized by my missionary, Elder Ruffner. Mike suggested that it would be cool to go back to Idaho to school with him at Rick's. Ah, I've already registered at Florida, I said. I got my housing lined up and everything. Besides, I'd have to cut my hair. I had a pretty cool mane. <laughs> But Idaho is awesome, he said, with snow and mountains and skiing and trout fishing. Plus, at Rick's, there are three girls to every one guy, Mike countered. I got my hair cut the next day. My new bishop pulled some strings and got me accepted into Rick's college. Two weeks later, Mike and I and our new friend John Renfro drove out to Idaho. I sensed very strongly that I had a fresh start, and I determined with all my heart that I would try my very best in school to be successful and get good grades. Med school required a very high GPA, and after my lackluster freshman year at Florida, mine was an anemic 2.8, not good enough to get into med school. Mike also had desires to go to med school, so we took many of the same classes, and there was a good-natured competition between us to see who could get the highest grades. This motivation helped us both. We both got straight A's that year. In fact, I got straight A's the rest of my undergraduate schooling, a direct result of the impact the gospel of Jesus Christ had on my life. We also took as our religion classes the Book of Mormon and a mission prep class. My mission prep class was team taught by Brother Keith Sellers and Henry B. Eyring, the president of Rick's College. That next summer, Mike and I submitted our mission papers and I was called to serve in the Bolivia La Paz mission and Mike was called to Germany Dusseldorf. We received our endowments in the Salt Lake Temple on August 9th, 1975, 
one day shy of my one-year anniversary of joining the church. We both entered the language training mission, as it was called then, the LTM, on the campus of BYU in Provo a few days later. We spent two months there learning our mission language, Spanish for me, German for Mike. My district in the LTM was all elders going to Bolivia, and we grew very close through the challenging process of language training together. After two months, we were deemed ready to go. We flew from Salt Lake to Denver to Dallas to Fort Lauderdale and finally to Miami, Florida, arriving about midnight. My parents, neither members of the church, drove down from Jacksonville and were allowed to visit me one last time in person in the airport. I also got to speak by phone to my younger brother and sister. Then about 3 a.m. on October 6th, 1975, we took off for Bolivia. We arrived in Bolivia later that morning and got picked up in the La Paz airport in a van by the mission president and his assistants. The airport is an altitude of about 13,000 feet, and we felt it. With headaches from lack of oxygen and moving very slowly to avoid running out of breath, we were taken back to the mission home and put straight to bed. They woke us up that afternoon, fed us, and that evening split us up, and we went out to teach, pairing up with the office elders. We spent that night in the mission home. The next morning after breakfast, my second day in Bolivia, the mission president approached me with a grim look on his face and said, Elder, this is the saddest thing I've ever had to do. And he handed me a folded slip of paper. I opened it, and it was a Western Union telegram. It simply said, Please inform Eric Garner, his brother Elliot, killed in motorcycle accident. Parents desire boy to remain in mission. Whoa. The bottom dropped out of my world. How could this be? I'd just spoken to him. I had already said goodbye to him, and I thought it would be two years before I saw him, not the rest of my life. The mission president took me to a room where I could be alone and begin to process then. I was heartbroken. I still miss him. But the gospel of Jesus Christ gave me knowledge of where he was, that he was okay and that I would see him again. And he needed his temple work done, which I was ultimately able to do. Without deep belief in the plan of salvation, I don't know how would I, I would have handled this loss of my little brother. A week later, a letter arrived for me. It was from the First Presidency. They expressed sorrow at my loss, reassurance of the plan of salvation, and commended me for my faith. It was sweet reassurance that if Spencer W. Kimball and Eldon Tanner and Marion G. Romney were aware of me, I trust the Lord was aware of me too. And that was enough. I'm going to turn the time over to my sweetheart who will continue our story. He forgot to tell you that we actually met like the first day I was there <laughs> at Rick's College, which was fun, but we were just friends. I had a different boyfriend. You know how that is? Or maybe you don't. Anyway, uh, when he got home in August, we uh, were engaged in September, and uh, we were married in December. But when we first got married, we decided that we would not have a television while we were in school, because 
I knew how easy it was for him to be distracted by a television. He grew up on a television. And, um, but we needed full concentration with what we were going to be uh, facing going to medical school. Um, so uh, when he went to Rick's College and BYU, the reason he got straight A's was he would read every assignment three times, each time with a different color marker and then categorize it. So he actually knew all his material very well because he read everything three times. And of course, he was able to repair his GPA. And since Eric was from Florida, uh, he grew up in Jacksonville, he was accepted to the medical program at the University of Florida. And you know that's where Gatorade was invented, right? Florida Gators, the Gator is their <laughs> mascot, and they invented the Gatorade for their football players so they could survive, because it's, it's hot there. Medical school was tough for a lot of reasons. One was that we were pretty destitute. We lived in married student housing while we were in Gainesville, Florida. But uh, while we were there, we heard on the radio that they were talking about um, the national poverty level. And if you live under a certain income amount, you are considered in the poverty level. And we realized that by the national poverty level, we lived on half of the national poverty level. <laughs> so we were, we were pretty minimally, uh, we lived a minimal existence, I guess I could say. Our cupboards were never really very full and sometimes actually bare. And if our car was working, we didn't have money for gas. And if we happened to have a few dollars for gas, our car was usually out of commission. So it was an extremely stressful way to live, especially when you have little ones that need to be fed. Another very hard thing that happened at that time was we, we, we lost our third baby. The cord was wrapped around her neck and so she died before she was born. It was, it was, a, it was a tough time for us. Um, when Eric got into medical school, it was impossible for him to read everything the way he did at BYU. There, uh, there was just was so much material. It'd be a miracle if you could even read all of it. Um, so in spite of how of the, the life hard stuff and everything that was going on, Eric did really well in school. He was actually second in his graduating class by 0.0. 5% of a point. And this was out of 160 medical students in his class. And I'm telling you, these were smart people. Eric used to say, I am definitely not the smartest person in this class by a long shot. But he was still able to do really well. And we really felt like the key to his success, besides the fact he studied really hard, was in keeping the Sabbath day holy. We were trying to do our church callings the best we could in our situation. And I'm telling you that because you can see that enormous amount of reading that was required in medical school, it would have been easy to justify studying on Sunday. But we had made the decision from the beginning of our marriage that we, were, we would honor the Sabbath day and also accept callings in whatever ward we happened to be in. We were really just trying to follow the prophet's counsel, which we know and believe that this counsel comes straight from our Heavenly Father, Often we as mere mortals tend to question and hesitate and, you know, we're really not sure about things, but President Kimball made it easy. He just said, do it, just do it. Follow the prophet. He knows the way. 
we could sing the song. You should probably sing it every day. Just keep singing it. <laughs> There's a lot of truth taught in the primary songs. Anyway, one of the callings that Eric had while he was in medical school was the gospel doctrine teacher, which was great. But the most memorable calling he had during medical school would be his calling as scoutmaster. He didn't know anything about scout mastering. He had never been a scout, but he did know how to have adventures. He took his little troop can canoeing down the Ichitakni River and then into the Suwannee River. And they camped in the wilds on the banks of the river. Now, we're talking about Florida here. There are alligators and there are water moccasins, rattlesnakes, coral snakes, and copperheads. Knowing all of this tells you that God's arms were around this little green scoutmaster and his little troop. It's a miracle. And as an old Hawaiian lady once told me, Heavenly Father wants us to have fun. And so miraculously, this little troop had fun. They found an old dead tree that was full of honey, wild honey. So they knocked over the tree and ate the honey like little bears. It was a memorable trip. There's one memory that I have from uh, Florida. We went to a party at Lake Wahlberg. And um, I was always nervous about my little kids around water because of the alligators everywhere. And then why the next week, a man came in the hospital with his arm nearly off, bitten by an alligator right there at Lake Wahlberg. Right, you know, you've got a swimming rope that circles where you're supposed to swim. The alligators, they just don't respect that, you know? <laughs> Even though he might have been outside a little bit, they don't care. Anyway, after graduating from medical school, we left Gainesville, Florida, and took our three babies. We had Camilla, Chet, and Conrad, and we headed to San Antonio, Texas for his intern and residency program in head and neck surgery, ENT, or otorhinolaryngology. Took me a week to learn to say that, by the way. San Antonio was a really cool place. It's the home of the Alamo, which is very, you know, but a lot of people gave their life there and it feels very sacred, almost like you're on temple grounds when you visit that, that place. But while we were living there, they actually built SeaWorld. It was also the birthplace of our two boys, Zach and Avery, our fourth and fifth. At the time, a million people lived in the city but members were few. We actually had one stake for a million people, and half our stake was actually outside of the city. So that's how small the membership was there. And in fact, the kids in our ward, they, they went to, everyone went to a different high school. They didn't have other members in the school with them. So it was, it was hard. Um, one thing that happened, Eric was doing his calling. There was a time when he couldn't do anything because he would leave Monday morning and come home like Tuesday night at 11 o'clock, fall asleep and get up. And so for one year, he couldn't really do much. But one year he was, he must have been working with the deacons and they took the deacons and some other boys. They went to a water park because it's hot in Texas. That's the only thing you can do for fun is get wet. But he was on call, but the other leader had to leave, but he was going to take his chance and he'd be okay. Sure enough, he got a call, had to go in, dragging his four little deacons with him into the ER. <laughs> this man had tried to do himself in by putting his head on a railroad track. Well, the train came along. 
knocked his head off and cut his ear off. So anyway, those little boys got to be there while he sewed this ear back onto this man's head. <laughs> anyway, it was, a, it was a tough time in San Antonio also because, of course, we, were, we still didn't have hardly any money and lots of little kids. But we heard that you could go to uh, glean potatoes from the church farm after harvest. And, you know, like Ruth did, you know, you go in and you gather up after they've already, whatever's left on the ground. So, you know, I grew up in Idaho. Whoops, excuse me. I'm a Idaho girl. And I thought, hey, potatoes are great. We can live for months on potatoes. So we got tons of potatoes and um, stuck them in our closet. And um, but after a couple, three weeks, our house started to smell really bad. In fact, it started to smell putrid. Then we realized it was the potatoes in the closet. A closet in Texas does not pass for a root cellar like here in Idaho, in which potatoes will last for months. But anyway, but in spite of our destitute situation, you know, we never really felt poor. We may have felt stressed out, but not poor. And I believe there's something about knowing who we are and where we come from and that our Heavenly Father loves us and He, know, and he knows us that gives us gives any person a bigger perspective and purpose. And that's more the person you identify yourself with. But through this period in our lives, our prayers were often desperate and our need pretty great. And as it often is in those situations, inspiration and personal revelation start to become easier to recognize and more critical to rely on. Because basically, you get a lot of practice. I grew up in the church. I had goodly parents who taught me well, and I never remember not knowing the church was true or that Heavenly Father loves me. I always believed. But those 12 years of medical school and residency, of going through hard, hard times and dire situations that really left me pretty wrung out with a little PTSD, that was when I actually truly learned to trust God. Trusting God is more. It's the result of one desperate prayer after another 100 desperate prayers, and it compounds our faith somehow. But all of you who are here and all of you who are listening today, you may have been through some hard stuff already, but no matter who you are, hard stuff will come. So learn to know your Heavenly Father better. Our Heavenly Father loves us. Spend time on your knees getting to know Him so when desperate times do come, your way you'll be able to recognize that He is beside you and you'll learn to know what it means to trust Him. Our dear prophet gave a talk on Revelation. He stated, In coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. He later said, This is the privilege of every Latter-day Saint that it is our right to have the manifestations of the Spirit every day of our lives. We should take advantage of this gift. In fact, learn to use this gift through the good times, so when the hard times come your way, you have no need to fear. After San Antonio, we headed to Chicago, where Eric finished up his fellowship program, studying under a world-famous doctor at the time, Dr. Tardy. 
In order for Eric to do this, he would have to leave our house at 4.30 in the morning. He would take a two-hour train ride, then hop on two different buses just to get to the hospital downtown Chicago. At that time, there were 8 million people squished together there. I have no idea how many there are now. So you can imagine how nice it was to finally settle in Boise, and his commute was only max 20 minutes if the lights were all red. But here in Boise, we had our last two children, Charlotte and Garrett. And when we first got here, Eric would say all the time, Boise is the best kept secret in the world. But the secret is out, isn't it? It's a little crazy here. But it's been a wonderful, it's been really wonderful to live here and raise our children here and get to serve in the church with such good faithful members. And it's really amazing to have two temples right here in our vicinity. And it's so good to see you guys. Anyway, it's his turn again. I've had three paradigm shifting experiences in my life. I related one when I joined the church. You may have gotten the understanding that I kind of didn't fully understand the atonement prior to joining the church. In fact, for years after having joined the church, I didn't really get it. I, I was kind of a self-saver. I thought I had to work my way to heaven. And what changed my thinking completely about that was a book by Stephen Robinson. If you've ever heard of the book called Believing Christ, it changed everything in my understanding of the atonement. So that was paradigm shift number two. The third paradigm shift I had was I was scoutmaster again in Boise. I'd just been released from Bishop being bishop of a family ward, and they put me in as scoutmaster, and my own son, my best friend's son, and two other boys, three, four other boys, so six of boys altogether, were in the troop. And it was, it was interesting. My son and Brother Irish's son, when they got together, it was a toxic combo. And they had driven away two other Scoutmasters. And I thought, I've been a bishop, I can handle this. Whew. After about two months, I think five of them were on medication and the sixth one should have been. I called them Troop ADD. It was, it was really a challenge. And a challenge to the point where I was ready to, to quit. And I asked, or I told my wife that I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting their time. Uh, I'm going to ask to be released. And she says, well, why don't you pray about it? Ah, I prayed about it. I've asked God to make me have love for these boys. It's not working. She says, well, maybe you're praying wrong. Maybe if you pray to feel how he feels about these boys, it may be different. Okay, I'll try that. So I prayed. I asked if I could feel just a particle of the love that he felt for these knuckleheads that were about to drive me crazy. And I had a revelation, and I don't use that word lightly. The feeling, when I asked to feel how he felt about these boys, the feeling that welled up inside of me was so indescribably beautiful. And the feeling 
that I got from knowing how much he cared about these boys and how much he loved them changed my outlook completely. Once I knew I had a personal experience of how much he loved them, I wanted them to be successful. I no longer cared that they were tangential and crazy and wouldn't pay attention when we tried to talk about mirror badges. I wanted them to be successful. And I worked harder than I've ever worked on anything to make those boys have a good experience in scouting. And what changed that, that third paradigm shift that changed my life was understanding how much they meant to Father. And when I knew that, all I wanted to do was make them successful for Him. So, those are my three great paradigm shifts that I've had thanks to the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life. And it's changed how I even deal with patients. I've got some slides that wouldn't have helped our podcast people very much, but taking care of people who'd been injured, particularly in the facial areas with bony injuries or soft tissue injuries, usually not the cream of the crop of the neighborhood. <laughs> But I felt that these people probably knew when they had their exit interview with Heavenly Father before coming to earth that there would be challenges for them. And they accepted it. And they came. They may live under a bridge now. But I know how he feels about them. So I took care of them just the same way I take care of anybody. And that's impacted the practice of medicine. So that's my professional impact that the Church of Jesus Christ and the Gospel of Jesus Christ has had in my professional life. So it's time for us to wrap up. We'll close. I'll close with my testimony that I know that this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That prayer that was answered for me is Joseph Smith a prophet? Is the Book of Mormon true? Never has left me. It still resonates within me as strong as it ever has. And I know that Jesus lives, that he is the Savior and Redeemer of the world, that he is our God and our King. And I know that as well as I know that I stand here before you today. And I say that in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.